Uh, I'm an addict named Monta. I want to thank uh, DJ and the committee for asking me to come up here and speak. Um, I know a lot of work goes into these retreats, and I've had a lot of life-changing um, interactions at men's retreats. And I think they're an important part of what we do in recovery, uh, no matter what fellowship you're in. And by the way, DJ asked me to come. I just realized this. He asked me to come to an AA retreat and give an NA message. So I don't know if that's funny or not, but it seems like it. <laughs> but, you know, for me, recovery encompasses everybody, you know, that wants to be about the business of being um, in recovery and changing their lives. And um, I'll do a little bit about my history. Uh, like DJ said, I've been clean for about 16 years. I got clean uh, March 3rd, uh, 2003 which is 333, and that's also my race number. Um, and it took me a lot of years to make it into the rooms of recovery and stay. Um, I grew up in a pretty normal household. Uh, there wasn't a lot of crazy um, use or abuse happening. There was divorce. Uh, my parents divorced when I was five. I'm 48 years old, by the way. Um, and. Uh, I spent most of my time living with my father. And my mom, even though she was not um, abusive or neglectful in the way that you would think in how a lot of us have experienced trauma, but she was not really involved um, in, in mine and my brother John's life. And so my dad raised me and he did the best that he could. Um, he wasn't very good at showing um, love you know, like hugs and telling me he loved me. In fact, I still to this day tell my dad I love him and he says, okay, you know. And, but I know he wants to say it back. It's just, he, you know, he's, he's got his own history, but I know deep down in his heart he loves me back, but he's just an old timer. He's just an old mountain man and that's what he does and, and I accept that. And so, um, you know, through high school, in, in middle school, my brother John, who was three years older than me, got involved in using drugs and he left the house. And uh, I, at that point, you know, I was uh, on the varsity wrestling team and uh, I didn't want anything to do with, with drug use at all. And, um, And that slowly shifted and changed through uh, my eighth grade year, where I started drinking on the weekends and um, eventually trying cocaine. Um, before I made it to, to high school, my dad and I had been lived everywhere. I lived in Mexico in a van. Um, I lived in Portland in so many different places. And we ended up. Um, kind of backtracking a little bit, we ended up moving to Alaska when I was about 12 years old. And so um, my freshman year in Alaska, the use was getting more consistent. It wasn't just on the weekends, it was kind of happening midweek. Um, in Alaska, things are a little bit different, you know? There's a lot of, there's not like street crime and street use in the small little fishing town that I lived in. Um, but there was active use going on, it just looked a little bit different. 
And when things got started to get noticeably unmanageable, um, my dad um, asked if I wanted to move back to Portland with his sister, my aunt. And I was, I was a, see, it was the summer of my freshman year, so I just must have been about 15. And uh, I moved back to Portland. I flew to Portland. I had been fishing that whole prior season, and I had like $13,000 from doing, uh, from some long lining. And so that was a lot of money uh, back in the 80s, a lot of money for a 15-year-old, you know. And so I had this pocket full of money, and I moved in with my aunt. I was going to go to go to high school, and um, I ended up uh, connecting with this older guy who was, we were connected through this girl that I was seeing, her older sister had this boyfriend and he had this tree service and he's like, do you want a job? And uh, I took the job with him and he was smoking crack. And, uh, and I tried that. And from that moment on, like it was over for me. There was no like, there was no, there was no, do you want to smoke some crack on the weekends? It was like, it, it got real bad, real fast. Um, and all this time, my dad just thought I was going to school and doing all this stuff. He had no idea about what was going on and things, you know, I went from a pretty normal using kid <laughs> in Alaska to um, running on the streets of Northeast Portland, um, involved in um, a variety of things that I wouldn't imagine that I would have been involved in. But I ended up um, in a, doing a home invasion with this guy and uh, I ended up with a robbery and a kidnapping charge at 15 years old. Um, and I was sentenced to McLaren for five years. And that blew my mind. Like, all this happened literally within like eight months. Like, my whole life fell apart so quickly. And uh, I got sent to McLaren. And uh, I got first, my first six months there, um, I was in, um, uh, I got, I was in the, I was in the gang cottage because I was antisocial because they put all the antisocials that kidnap and rob people into this cottage. I was in with a lot of the gang members and we did that, uh, I forget what program they called it, we did that for six months and then I went to a drug and alcohol cottage next and we talked about, we didn't really, I don't remember that we talked about recovery but we talked about addiction and what that was but I, I didn't connect the dots at all, you know. Um, I just thought like I made some bad choices and I can be normal and everything was going to be fine. So I did about a year and a half in McLaren. Then I went and um, uh, uh, went to a couple transitional houses for like a year or so and got went, ended up back in Portland. I got a job um, downtown and was like working security at Pioneer Square back in like the 90s. Back in the 90s, there was also these guys called the Portland Guides. They walked around in green like the Guardian Angels. You guys remember those, anybody? So I got that job, I thought it was cool doing this job downtown, then I started drinking, um, and that led me right back to using crack again. And this cycle just spun me out over the next few years, and that led into meth use. And meth use took me into this downward spiral of, um, well, anybody that's done meth knows where that takes you. Um, and uh, for the next, you know, 15 or so years, in and out of prison, in and out of jail, I've been arrested over uh, 24 times. 
Um, I've done almost 10 years in prison combined uh, uh, for everything that I've done. I call it the installment plan because uh, I didn't want to do the 10 years at once. So I did two years here, three years there. You know, they had a really, there was no, it was interest free. Uh, so I did my installment plan. And I say all that because every time I went to jail or prison, um, I didn't go there and think about how do I become a better criminal. Like I went there broken and um, in a place of really wanting to change and trying to grasp of like how do, how, do I, how do I do this, right? And so I'd read a bunch of books while I was in there. Didn't ever, I, wasn't, I didn't make it to any uh, NA meetings or any AA meetings. Um, I did some church stuff and uh, I would come up with a plan, I got out, and I'd go to my mom's house, and then I would get the job, and then I would start drinking because I thought I could be normal, and then immediately right back to meth, and then it, it just went, you know, the same shit over and over and over again. So I paroled out, you know, five different times. And so um, I remember very vividly the last time the cuffs went on me um, in the free world and um, I was you know I was moving from one hustle to another and I was doing a hustle with a credit card thing and and I was sitting there and the and the person was giving me the they were dragging me and I knew they were waiting on the cops to show up and I just sat there anyway like I just like in my gut I'm like the cops are coming I'm like no you can sit this one out it's fine you're just you're tripping and but also I also felt like I need this to be over you know and when the officer arrested me the last time, I broke down in the back of the police car and I just remember feeling like, I can't do this anymore, you know? I wanna change and I didn't know how to do it. Um, and uh, the cop that actually arrested me was really cool. Um, he pulled over and let me make some phone calls on a cell phone to my family who I hadn't talked to in a long time. Um, and uh, you know, I went to prison. You know, that I knew I was going to get my issue, do my, you know, whatever it was. I did, I think, a couple years, maybe 30 months, and um, did some treatment while I was in there. Still not really understanding recovery or, or uh, you know, Narcotics Anonymous um, or AA. Uh, but um, when I got out, the thing that was different was I was assigned a recovery mentor. And that mentor was a member of the fellowship. And he got me into some recovery housing. And he just sat me down and he said, he just said, do you want to keep doing the same thing? And I'm like, no, I don't. And he's like, if you are willing to take action in something that you don't believe in or understand, you have hope to get through this. And I said, well, what does that mean? He's, he said, that means I'm going to give you some advice over the next three, four months, and I want you to take it without asking me any questions about it. And I said, does that mean like everything? Because I was supposed to be going, I was paroled out to Washington County Corrections. I just had to do my little 90-day trans leave. I wanted to get back to Washington, which is where my family was. He's like, I'm going to ask you probably to stay here longer than you need to be. Are you willing to do that? And I said, yes, I am, you know? In that moment, I was. And uh, he took me to my first real meeting. Um, it was an AA meeting. Um, it was at the Forest Grove Recovery Center. And uh, I got to 
I began to meet some men that were speaking um, in a way that I could understand and in a way that gave me some hope, you know. And we talk about this word hope, and this word hope to me is so powerful because I see it on the daily just exploding in people's hearts without their permission. When I see other people in recovery impacting others' lives, I see it happen, and they weren't even asking for it, and they don't know what to do about it. It just happens. They, they feel the hope, and that's what I felt in that moment, in that meeting, where I was like, okay, there's like a group of guys here that have been where I've been and can connect with me. And so, I mean, I, I took almost every suggestion, <laughs> except for driving without a license, <laughs> from my mentor, who got me a sponsor, um, and uh, I really began to do some work. But the real test of my introduction into, into, into Narcotics Anonymous um, was on, nine, on my 91st day, when I was eligible to go home to my girlfriend, I was eligible to get out of Washington County and move back to Vancouver, and my mentor pulled that card. He said, do you remember we had the conversation that you would be willing? I said, yeah, but I'm going home. I got things, I'm doing good. I got my job, I'm doing, I'm framing houses. And he's like, what have you done the last five times? I said, I've gone home. He's like, but I've gone to this recovery house first. And he's like, you know, and he, and he shared, he started sharing with me his um, story of hope through his sponsor and his recovery journey and his experiences and from that I heard some hope and I began to really listen and tune into um, he really was a, he was really good at getting me out of the moment and thinking in the future you know I know we say in recovery don't future trip but we do have to be thinking about where we're going while also keeping our eyes on the road with what's happening right in front of us you know and I like the thinking about I like to think about it. I teach um, r racing out at the racetrack, do like road racing on pavement. And we, when I talk to my new riders, there's a whole bunch of us instructors and we take them out in groups and we're doing, you know, 180 miles an hour, 100 mile an hour corners. And we're telling them, you're gonna see us instructors look back to check on you, but you don't look back. You look forward because that already happened to you and that's about to happen to you and I say that because I use that in my recovery today because I'm not looking back I'm looking at what's coming my way so I'm always looking at what's coming my way with my recovery lens um, of what I've learned through the steps through the traditions of this program and so he used that card on me that day back to he said I would like you to stay six more months in this Oxford house and I about, I was like, I can't do that. <laughs> Six months, like, you're holding me back, bro. He's like, let me, oh, let me just tell you a quick little story about that recovery house. So my mentor, who's in recovery, obviously, um, and I talk about my mentor a lot because he was the one with me in that crucial first six months year of my life. Like, I had a sponsor, but this guy was like committed like no other. And, um, uh, so he takes me to this Oxford house, because I got out to this other recovery house. He's like, I'm going to take you to a better one. And I got in there, um, and uh, I woke up the next day. 
Oxford chapter, I didn't know who, what chapter was of Oxford, but these group of people in recovery showed up and they UA'd the whole house and I was the only one clean. <laughs> Everybody got kicked out and they're like, you're now the president. I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> the president of what? Uh, that's a whole nother Oxford journey, but, um, uh, but you know what? I took his advice and I didn't go home and I gave myself six more months. And the whole premise of that was him wanting me to be able to lean on myself, to be out on my own, to use my recovery um, network of people through the program of Narcotics Anonymous and to build my own life. And then when I'm ready and more stable to then integrate back into uh, my regular community, my family community. And I believe strongly to this day that if that whole process wouldn't have happened that way, I might not be here sitting here clean today, you know? And I thank him, his name, name's Doug V. He's from uh, the Clackamas area. I still talk to him this day, to this day. In fact, um, he relapsed years later and I detoxed him off meth at my house. And now he's got over two years clean again today, you know? So that we, this whole, this whole recovery thing, it like comes in circles, you know? It doesn't matter who's supporting who, but we're supporting each other, you know, on a constant basis. And so, um, so when I finally got back um, to Vancouver, I was in the program of NA, but I was also um, really involved in my church. I was an assistant pastor of a very small church, and I had a lot of... Uh, things pulling me in two different directions. And I really started focusing on my church more than my recovery, and it, my 12-step my recovery slowly went away, and for three years, I was church only. I did like a recovery group there. And all this stuff happened in that place, and you know, I stayed clean through it, and you know, I have a lot of different beliefs today. Um, but at the end of the day, what happened with that was I was asked to leave the church because I was um, confronting the pastor about it got to be kind of cultish some weird shit was happening I'm like I'm not doing this this is getting too weird and and so I left the church but here's what happened is that my whole recovery network was yanked out from underneath me and I had nobody because I had kind of disengaged um, and um, I called the one person um, actually, no, I got a phone call from Doug, my mentor. He called me, he's like, hey, do you want to be a recovery mentor? And I was like, yeah, how do I do that? And he's like, come, come talk to me in Clackamas next week at Bridges to Change. So I went down there, and I just said, bro, listen, I, I don't really have a recovery program right now. I just left this church. And he's like, well, we've done this before, haven't we? And so um, he told me to find an NA meeting in Vancouver. I did. I showed up to the men's house um, in Vancouver, Washington, and I walked in, and I introduced myself, and it was like, with five years clean, and it was like walking into that Forest Grove Recovery Center, not knowing what to do all over again. And when I talk about, you know, NA saved my life with five years clean, right? These men heard what I was saying, um, and they wrapped themselves around me, and I built this phenomenal support group for the next um, 
12 years um, in Narcotics Anonymous. And um, it just blows my mind to see how our fellowship, our fellowships um, really pull together to really support someone uh, when they're when they're in a dangerous spot. And that's if you use yesterday or if you've been clean 15 years, right? That's what we do. Um, and, um, and so I spent a lot of years in Vancouver and I moved over to Portland. Um, and my recovery started to change, you know? I won't go into my whole, I don't wanna make this about my job, but my job's also who I am and I have to talk a little bit about it. Um, I work in the recovery field and I've worked in a lot of different positions and I'm in a position now to where I, I run an organization. I don't mean to say that as boisterous, but I, I say it because it's placed me in an odd situation over the last five years. And um, I've had a really hard time reconnecting to the fellowship in Portland because I employ like 170 people who are all in recovery. Wherever I go, people wanna talk about what jobs are open and stuff like that. And I'm down for that, but it's hard for me to go and be Monta in fucking recovery and not Monta, the CEO of an organization. And so I've really struggled to build a, a new support group. Um, I still have the same sponsor from Vancouver. We just had our sponsorship, annual sponsorship um, day last Sunday. There's about eight of us. We Skyped in our grand sponsor from, uh, from Costa Rica. So I still do my work. I, I have a sponsor, but I've had a hard time connecting in the fellowship in the community. Because sometimes I just want to be Monta in recovery, and when I'm going to places, I'm Monta, you know, and, and that's just who I am today, and I can't, and, I, and I'm happy about that. My job is amazing, but it is, it's been a struggle for me, and so I've made some commitments to myself for this year, is to uh, find a home group that, um, that, um, that I can attend on a regular basis, regardless of who is there. I'm choosing a home group that's out, kind of far out in the Vancouver area. Um, and uh, I'm making those connections. Uh, and I, you know, my, my thought of this talk today, um, and I don't know if I'm doing it very well, but is, is like our recovery evolves from day one to whatever year, month, or day that you're in, right? And we have to be able to, um, to evolve with our recovery. Um, but there are some very, from, in my opinion, there are some very strong foundational pieces that need to be there for long-term recovery. And that's your support group. That's, um, you know, I believe strongly in working through the steps. I, work, I believe strongly in applying those steps to every aspect of my life today. And I can do a step working group over eight months, and I, can, and I can have way different answers than I did the previous year. And I apply the steps to what's happening in my life today. And the magic happens in the step work, and the magic happens when we're working with other groups of men in this fellowship, you know? I see it happen um, on a daily basis. And I'm grateful and I'm thankful for our predecessors who set up our, um, um, our fellowship in a way to give us some guidelines around um, what is the most important things in our recovery. So building that network of people, so that network of people that's not gonna co-sign my shit, that's gonna fucking call me out on it when they see me going sideways, you know? And I have two men in my life that do that 
uh, on a constant basis, and, and I love them, and I appreciate that. Um, um, and so working the steps and also being of service, right? Um, is like, what am I doing today to give back to the community that needs me, the community that I took from, you know, that living amends process? Um, and so, so wherever you're at in your recovery today, don't be afraid if it begins to change, right? But talk to your people that are in your support group to make sure those changes aren't detrimental to what your recovery should be, you know? Because we can make up all kinds of reasons to change everything and not do anything and put ourselves in a dangerous situation. And I'm not here to tell you what that looks like for you. I know what it looks like for me. Um, um, you know, step 10 is very important to my daily walk in my life that I continue to take personal inventory and when I'm wrong, like, I catch myself, and I admit it, and I do something about it. And that's from um, being an asshole to my wife. Um, that's from uh, offending a friend of mine. That's from making a bad decision at work, right? Like, owning my stuff and looking at it. So step 10 to me is, um, on, a, on the daily, is so important. Um, I want to talk, tell you a little bit of story, a little story about um, the power of amends, and at least it was powerful for me. Um, I race motorcycles as a hobby, and it's like it's. I should probably be in like motorcycle racing anonymous because I I do things that are probably not going to meet my needs over the long term, financially, safety wise, and I do it anyway. So all these things, um, but I love racing. I've been racing since 2007. Um, and my tire sponsor, this guy, his name's Tom, um, and he'd been my tire sponsor from 2007 to 2012. Um, and uh, in 2011, maybe it was 10, we were out at his shop one day, and uh, and we were talking about tires. And he's like, "Oh yeah, I used to used to own Rose City." motorcycle it's now cycle gear on 92nd and Stark it's been there for years and I was like oh shit I was like oh my god so it all came back into that moment his face the day in 1999 I went in there and I passed a counterfeit cashier's check for almost 10 grand for a motorcycle and I drove off with it and here's the man sitting right in front of me who I built a friendship, who has sponsored me in racing. And I was like, oh my God. Not only am I facing this person, but my whole love of racing is wavering of what happens in this situation. Because I very easily could have been, don't ever come back to the racetrack. I mean, it's a very small community. Um, and I could have been marked as that guy. And so I left there that day and I called my sponsor, Tony, and I was like, oh man. And so I told him what happened. He's like, yeah, that's fucked up. <laughs> I said, yeah, it is. He's like, what, you know what you gotta do? And I'm like, yeah, I know what I gotta do. He's like, how much money you got? And I'm like, I was a mentor at the time. I was, you know, I was not, I didn't have a ton of money but I had a race bike and I had like this parts bike. So I had like a couple grand and I had like 
a $6,000 bike. And I was like, I could sell the bike. I got the bike. I could do this, you know. And he's like, well, put something together and, and go prepare to have a conversation. I was like, all right. So I called Tom up the next day, and I'm like, hey, Tom, can I come see you? Uh, I got to talk to you about something. He's like, yeah, come on down. Uh, he lives right behind the Portland Gun Club. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, we, and it, his house, and he's got this giant shop, and he's this old-timer. He's, so, he's been in the business for like 30-something years. Everybody knows him. He's like the icon of racing. Um, and I'm like, can we sit down? And he looked at me like, sit down? Why? We, we never sit down and talk. Like, we're putting motorcycles together. He's like, is this serious? And I'm like, yeah, it's, it's kind of serious. He's like, all right, all right, let's sit down. So we, uh, we sat down, and I said, Tom, I'm going to tell you something, and, uh, and I don't know if you're going to want to kick my ass. I don't know if you're going to want to – I don't know what you're going to want to do, but you're not going to like it. He's like, oh, okay. Um, I said, I need to tell you a little bit about myself first. Not everybody knew uh, about the, my recovery, and so I told him a little about recovery. I started talking about Narcotics Anonymous, talked about step work, talked about um, the ninth step, the eighth and ninth step, and, um, and I said, I'm here today because of that step. He said, so you owe me an amends? And I said, yeah, I, I, I do. He's like, all right, let's have it. And, uh, and I said, in 1999, and I said, I just realized this when we were having a conversation, you said you used to own Rose City Cycle. So this is all new. I haven't been holding this. I said, in 1999, I came into um, your store, and I purchased um, a GSXR 750, and I gave you a counterfeit cashier's check. And he looked at me. He goes, I still got that fucking check. <laughs> He said, I tried to cash that thing everywhere. I said, I don't have a lot of money, Tom. I don't know what the bike was worth. I know I gave you a, f a counterfeit check. I got this race bike. I, got, I can put together some money. I don't even know what. Talk to me. Say something. <laughs> and he's like, ah. he's like, the Christian side. I'll never forget this, man. It was so, he's like, the Christian side of me says, live, forgive, let it go. He says, but the business side of me says, I want my fucking money. <laughs> I said, that's fair enough. He says, but I, I, gotta, I gotta talk to my people. I'm like, people? What people? <laughs> and uh, he says, I said, what do you want me to do? I was like, we, I just got race tires from you yesterday. I'm supposed to be going racing. I got, he's like, I want you to race. He said, I, want you to, I don't want you to do anything different right now. I don't want any money from you right now. I need to think about this. I need to talk to my people. I said, okay. So this went on for like six months. You know, I'd call him in a couple weeks. I'd say, hey, Tom, have you made a decision? He's like, I haven't made a decision yet. I'll see you next round. What tires do you need? And don't bring me a check. <laughs> Cash only, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and so um, we finished the race season. Um, fall came. It was a couple weeks before Christmas. And he called me up. And he said, "Hey, Monta, I want to uh, <clears throat> I want to invite you out to uh, my annual Christmas gathering. It's all the racers and track day providers 
they get together for this big white elephant gift exchange and he says I want to invite you and your wife come on out you know I'm like all right he says it's at it's at the uh, the and then we're gonna go shooting first at the Portland Gun Club <clears throat> I'm like sorry uh, I'm a felon and I don't want to be around you with a gun anywhere soon he laughed at that and I said what are we doing anyway and he's like ah, I got something I got something worked out I said I, he said I'll let you know come on down to this event so so I go to this event and we're doing the Christmas thing and then the, he's up there giving his speech about next year's track day events and all the stuff and and he's like I want to tell you guys a story he goes in 1999 this dirt bag and he goes on he starts telling this story and I'm like I'm my I am like shitting my pants because there's all these people that know me. There's like a hundred people there. We're all racers. They don't know my history. And I'm just and and everyone's like, and he's telling the story. And he's like, yeah, fuck that dude. Rah, rah. And I was like, oh my God, what is happening? Uh, and he's like, and he, and he, but then he goes on to tell about how I approached him. He's like, but this guy became a racer. And then he realized what he did to me. And he goes on and he starts talking about like, I've been ripped off so many times as a business owner my business broken into, and he starts talking about all the trauma and all the distrust and tweakers and this, that, and, and um, he, he says this story, this situation gave me a chance to forgive and to see the other side of what addiction is and what addiction can be when it's in a, in a recovered state. And what this person is doing today in his personal life, and I was a program manager, I think, or a mentor. I was a mentor manager, I think, for Bridges at the time. And, um, and, uh, and he says, he's been trying to square up with me for months. And I'm ready to square up with him. Monta, you want to come up here? <laughs> and, uh, and so I went up there, and my legs were shaking. I was like, and he just went on, and he said, I know that your program says you're supposed to pay me back, but that would be offensive to me at this point, right? What I've gotten from this and what his experience was, was greater. And he said, you don't owe me a fucking dime, but what you do owe me is that every day of your recovery and the work that you do, you will continue, um, what do you say? You will do everything within your power to help every soul that you come across and I broke down and there were even there were, there were racers there these are a type personality dudes you know you know with tears it was it was so powerful man and I've had amends happen with my family and with my kids um, and so I can't say enough about what the amends process does for the it doesn't now this this turned out good doesn't work that way for everybody in every situation I understand that but this was an opportunity to show the power of this program and show the power of the eighth and the ninth step and what it can do for someone's recovery and what it can do for those that we've harmed you know but there's action that has to be followed behind that right it's not just a I'm sorry and then nothing right you know recovery is an action word it's a living process you know and so every day of my life, I think about that day um, and what that man said to me 
and what my responsibility is. And I think about that in terms of a lot of the damage that I've done, you know. And so my life is steeped in recovery. My recovery is looking a little bit different these days, and that will begin to change, and I'm going to get reconnected the way that, um, that I feel like I need to be. Uh, but the recovery community is there. Narcotics Anonymous has been there for me, for me since day one. Um, and so that was powerful. Um, the last thing I wanted to share in this last 10 minutes is, um, is anybody here sitting on an amends they're just like not ready to make yet? Not that the, not that the process is holding them up, just is anybody sitting on one? And if you're not raising your hand and you are, you know, talk to your sponsor about it, right? Get a plan together, you know? Take, a, take some risk, you know? Um, it's worth it. It's worth it for you. It's worth it for the folks that we're, that we're doing that amends process with. Now, did I go out and go to every store I wrote a bad check to? No. Because that would, except well, so when to do so would injure them or others. I use that one to, to get out of that. <laughs> but I do donate money. Um, the last thing I want to talk about is just a real quick, um, you know, as, as we grow in our relationships, I spent 10 years um, in a marriage that, I thought I needed to be in because we were both, you know, we were both kind of well-known pillars in the recovery community in Vancouver, and we kind of held this thing together for 10 years, and um, I, I guess I share that because I think it's important to know that when we're, when we're in recovery, um, that we get to go after the things that we want in life. Um, and we don't need to beat ourselves up and do things based on what other people want. And I say that because I was in a spot in this relationship um, raising kids that, I, that biologically weren't mine, and I've still raised them today. There's a whole story with all that, and I won't go into it. But I was at a place to where, like, I wanted to take a step in my recovery and do something for myself. Um, and what that process looked like for me was meeting with my sponsor, working steps around my relationship and then he also had me get some outside help to really talk through because I was planning on ending a 10-year marriage you know um, so it wasn't a decision made lightly um, but through step work specifically around my relationship that I did for about eight months straight um, and then some outside help I was able to apply the support from Narcotics Anonymous the support from my outside help to come to a decision to make a scary step for me to take care of myself um, and go after things that I want in life based on what I want you know and sometimes it's okay it's okay to take care of other people um, but it's also okay to take care of yourself um, and um, go after what recovery has to offer you we talk when I teach racing there's so many parallels in racing and recovery when we're teaching new students like we're turn one at PIR, it's like you're coming off the throttle at 180 miles an hour, you're on the brakes, you're tipping in at 120, and it's kind of like a, um, a double apex turn, there's like two turns, and the new riders will like stay close to the inside of the track, and they'll go slower because it, they're not using the whole track, right? And so when you get faster, you can just th 
throw it in there faster and you go to the outside and you let it run out and you, you go all the way to the outside edge and then you pull it back in. And I say that because we talk to our students about take full advantage of what the track has to offer you, right? You're living in this little tiny spot. There's so much more you can be doing, right? And so when I think about that in recovery, I begin to think about like, what does recovery really have to offer me? And am I taking full advantage of everything that it has to offer me? Am I just, you know, doing the bare minimum? And if I do the bare minimum, what am I, I'm getting these small results, right? But when I walk into my recovery, walk into my step work, walk into my service work, walk into uh, working with other men in recovery, recovery opens up all these other options for me, right? And so I say that to, to, to end it on, you know, wherever you're at in your recovery, ask yourself, are you taking full advantage of everything your recovery has to offer you today? And if you're not, again, sit down with your sponsor. And if you don't have a sponsor, get a fucking sponsor, you know? Um, and, um, and sit down with them and say, here's what I'm doing. Tell me what else I could be doing. They'll help you take a look at that and put together a recovery that's gonna, that's gonna benefit you in the long term. And so, I don't know if anything I said uh, impacted anybody today, but I wanna thank DJ to, and for inviting me up here to talk. And uh, I'm gonna do recovery yoga at 4.15. I haven't taught yoga in two years, so come if you like, we'll see what happens. Um, yeah, I'm Monta, I'm an addict in recovery, thank you.